Welcome. My name's Nick Bisley. Um, I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, uh, and we're the co-hosts of this afternoon's public forum along with the La Trobe University Law School. La Trobe Asia was established this year as part of the university's uh, focus on uh, regional developments. And one of the informing ideas behind the establishment of La Trobe Asia uh, is the idea that universities have a significant amount to contribute to the public debate about uh, events in Asia, both in terms of Australia's engagement with Asia, but also the dynamics that are associated with the very dramatic uh, economic and social changes that are occurring in the region. And what we believe is that it's not just the traditional areas of Asian studies, the study of you know, Asian language, cultures and histories, but also that there's an enormous amount of knowledge about what's going on in the region that can be found across the universities. And so it's in many ways fitting that our final event for the year draws on a wide range of expertise, both within La Trobe and beyond La Trobe, looking at what all of you will be aware has been an extremely uh, hot political issue uh, in Australia and beyond this year, and that's the question of surrogacy in Asia. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome you here this afternoon. We're very pleased to have a fantastic international panel uh, who are fresh from a research workshop. This, as you're probably aware, uh, we'll have a panel discussion chaired by uh, Leanne Bassa. Each speaker will speak for um, 10 to 12 minutes or thereabouts, and then Q&A, we've got roving mics. But thank you all for coming. Uh, I know this time of year is extraordinarily busy, so we're very pleased you can make the time and uh, hope you find this discussion uh, interesting and engaging. So without any further ado, I'll pass over to the end. Thanks, Nick. So we are really delighted that Professor Jenny Milbank is joining us. She's a leading international expert on gender, sexuality and law, her research reaches across family, reproduction and human rights, um, making a very distinctive contribution to the broadening of the legal understanding of family law and developing new approaches to the legal recognition of families in the law. Many of her recommendations for law reform concerning family relationships and reproductive rights have been implemented in Australia and elsewhere in the past decade. She's also been at the forefront in developing international thinking around gender-based persecution, working with the UNHCR and others in policy development and litigation to ensure equal treatment in refugee status determinations for women and for those fleeing violence based on sexual um, orientation and gender identity. And she's going to talk broadly about cross-border reproductive treatment and how we respond to the challenges. Next to Jenny is Andrea Whitaker. Andrea is a, an ARC Future Fellow and the Convener of Anthropology in the School of Social Sciences at Monash University. Jenny's with us from the Faculty of Law at UTS in Sydney. Um, Andrea is an ARC Future Fellow and Convener of Anthropology, as I said, at Monash University. She's a medical anthropologist working primarily in the fields of reproductive health, biotechnology, and medical mobility or travel, with a particular interest in Thailand and Southeast Asia. She's currently undertaking research on medical travel in Thailand and Malaysia, contraceptive use amongst called women in Victoria, and a longitudinal study of people living with HIV in rural and regional Queensland. All these projects are funded by the Australian Research Council. Her future fellowship studies the reproductive travel in Thailand and the region for sex selection and surrogacy. She has a, a PhD from the University of Queensland and many, many publications, including Intimate Knowledge, Women and Their Health in Northeast 
um, Thailand. And more recently, abortion in Asia, local dilemmas, global politics. Um, and she has another book entitled Thai in Vitro, Assisted Reproduction in Thailand, which is coming out next year with Bergan Books. So welcome, Andrea. Sitting next to Andrea is Dr Kerry Peterson. Dr Kerry Peterson has a very long association with La Trobe. She's an honorary associate um, in the law school. She's published extensively in the fields of law and medicine and human reproduction. Um, she's a co-editor of Disputes and Dilemmas in Health Law and many other books. Um, and more recently, she was um, the editor of a special edition of our journal, Law in Context, um, on which was a celebration of socio-legal scholarship. She's a collaborator on a research project that's also supported by an Australian Research Council grant, which is a longitudinal study exploring women's experiences following a prenatal diagnosis of fetal abnormality with a team from the Murdoch Children's Research Centre. She's a member of the Medico-Legal Society, Women's Health Victoria, and is the lawyer on the Melbourne IVF Human Research Ethics Committee. So welcome, Kerry. And as we move down um, the uh, table, I'd like to introduce you to Rhonda Powell. Rhonda has, is visiting us from the University of Canterbury School of Law. She's an honorary research fellow also at La Trobe with the Judith Lumley Centre. Um, Rhonda's research interests include human rights law, health law and feminist legal issues. She's a graduate from the Centre of Socio-Legal Studies at Oxford University where she ha holds a, from where she holds a DPhil, from the University of Nottingham where she completed an LLM in human rights law and um, from the University of Otago where she completed a law degree and a BA in political science. So thank you for coming across the Tasman for today, Rhonda. And sitting next to Rhonda, um, as we also wend our way across from New Zealand, is Claire Ahmed. Claire has worked as an in-house human rights counsel for the New Zealand government, as a child rights and advocacy officer for UNICEF in The Hague, and as a senior advisor to the Chief Human Rights Commissioner of New Zealand. She's currently undertaking a PhD um, in the Department of Child Law at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Her thesis topic is International Commercial Surrogacy and the Rights of the Child. She's published and spoken on this topic internationally, including at Columbia and Aberdeen Universities, um, the World Social Work and Social Development Conference in 2012, the first global forum on statelessness, and most recently um, at the 25th um, anniversary celebration of the Convention on the Rights of the Child Conference. So, with having um, introduced everybody, I would like to move on um, and pose the first question to Jenny Milbank. Um, Jenny, your research um, on the legal and policy aspects of surrogacy has developed from your work on relationship recognition. You played a key role, for example, in bringing about the legal recognition of non-biological lesbian mothers in New South Wales. So how do Australian regulators develop a response to the phenomenon that we've seen accelerate in the last decade of Australians travelling abroad to get over our domestic restrictions on reproductive treatment? 
such as commercial surrogacy or sex selection in IVF. Okay, thank you. Um, in a sense, this is a question I want to take in two parts. One is kind of what is my position and how did I get there? And then the second is what I think um, the state should be doing and, and how it should be doing it. Um, in my own work, I am a feminist scholar. I've done a lot of work, at, as you've said, on, on um, relationship recognition on gay and lesbian families. And, I, and in later years, I've talked about reproductive outsiders and I've tried to build bridges both in theory and in, in policy and practice between lesbians and gay men and infertile people um, who are seeking other forms of reproductive assistance. Um, and I do think that those links are very important ones to draw. So when I talk about reproductive outsiders, I'm talking about people who are forming their families uh, by other means than sex. Um, and I think those families have a lot in common in the sense that they are non-normative family forms and they've been subject to a great deal of um, scrutiny, judgment, intrusion um, and assumptions. Um, and I think that my earlier work has really informed the approach that I've taken to surrogacy for that reason. Um, if you think about how lesbians and gay men were treated... Um, 10 or 20 years ago in terms of their ability to raise children. I think many of the same tropes um, and prejudice are being applied uh, to families who, who are formed through surrogacy at the moment. Um, so that's kind of infused a lot of my approach and that's how I come to sit here today as someone who is um, formally agnostic on commercial surrogacy and on cross-border reproduction. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's good. I think sometimes and for some people it works well and sometimes and for some people it works badly. Um, so my, my position is that we can't... that we have to be very, very cautious with um, non-normative family forms of starting from universal moral positions uh, based on how things have always been. These are good families. These ones are new and different and weird and therefore the state should make you all do criminal record checks or go through court processes or subject you to other forms of scrutiny. Um, it really wasn't that long ago in Australia that it was a universal policy position that surrogacy per se was bad for children. It wasn't that long ago that gay and lesbian parents were seen as inherently and universally bad for children. Um, I'm also very critical and very aware of the way that the rights and welfare of children have been used as a Trojan horse for um, assumptions and prejudice. Um, so I care very much about outcomes for children born through non-normative family forms, but I think that we have to proceed from an evidence base and we have to proceed from the basis that people form their families in the way that they can and that that deserves respect and consideration and that before the state intervenes and, be, and particularly before the state sets down any general rule or rule of general application, it has to be very, very sure that it has a, a, a reasonable evidence base um, for intruding into people's choices. Um, so I've argued very strongly that the role of the state here, and I'm quoting from the, the Nuffield Council, who I just love, um, the role of the state, they call it the stewardship role of the state, that the state should be facilitating what are seen as beneficial behaviours and providing conditions, whether physical or social, that help and enable people in making their choices, and by that they mean their, their reproductive or family formation choices, while avoiding active intrusion in those choices unless there is very strong evidence to justify such intrusion for the benefit of others. So that's the basis that I work from. Um, it's an evidence base and it should be grounded in the lived reality of the lives of people who are forming their families. Um, and so what I think Australian regulators should be doing is first and foremost understanding 
why cross-border reproduction is happening. And I think the evidence that we have from other countries, we have very little from our own, although um, some people sitting at this table are going to tell you about what we do know. But from other countries, it's actually quite clear that different people are travelling for different reasons. Uh, So gay men are travelling for different reasons uh, than straight people. People who are going to different countries are travelling for different reasons and from different countries are travelling for different reasons. And people seeking different kinds of treatment in different places are travelling for different reasons. So you can't just say cross-border reproduction is happening because people are cheapskates or because they want to evade the law in the country that they're leaving or because um, they are... um, seeking particular practices that are morally unacceptable at home. Um, In fact, there's an enormous range of reasons, and we have to unpack each and every one of those things before we then formulate a policy response. And in my view, that policy response has to be one that's about promoting beneficial practice, about helping people to understand the impact of the the decisions that they're making, um, and that we cannot simply have knee-jerk responses to cause celebs in the press, and I have to say surrogacy is probably the best example in Australian policy formation of always having done that. Almost every single surrogacy law we have is a response to one case, Um, be that a happy case like Alice Kirkman um, or a sad case like Rhea Evelyn. Um, So knee-jerk responses to cause celebs we shouldn't do Um, and, and simple blanket prohibitions I think are extraordinarily unhelpful. I think criminal law in any area of reproductive policy um, is useless. Uh, And I think we should have learnt our lesson with surrogacy, surely, after 30 years of of criminal prohibitions in different forms in different states. Um, So there's no... You can see by how long I've spoken, there's no easy answer, there's no quick answer, but I think the answer has to be one where we unpack very carefully who's going where and why... What are troubling about those practices? What is beneficial about those practices? And what can we do to try to ensure that the beneficial uh, is increased? So as we collect that evidence and we know more about what practice is here and what practice is abroad, how would you proceed, do you think? Um, If we were to have... Um, as I think we, we probably will end up having some form of regulation. And we have regulation already in the prohibition of commercial surrogacy, in the limitations around um, altruistic surrogacy. So how would you see us progressing? What would you see um, a carefully regulated system looking like? Look, I, I think there are a number of things we could do. I do think there are kind of push and pull factors. Um, I do think Australian law needs to liberalise further in its approach to surrogacy. Um, I myself have proposed a kind of middle path between uh, absolute altruistic surrogacy and commercial surrogacy, and that is a regulated form of surrogacy that allows for some forms of payment and some forms of intermediaries who do matching. So people who undertake commercial surrogacy, for example, don't say... I did it because I wanted to do commercial surrogacy. They say, I couldn't find someone. I couldn't find someone to be a surrogate for me. Or quite often they'll say, I needed an egg donor and a surrogate and that was just too much for me. Um, And so the attraction to commercial surrogacy for them is that there's someone someone else who knows how to do this, someone who knows how to find the right person for them and to do the matching. Um, 
And so I, I think that the, the research literature shows us that um, professional intermediation uh, has a role, to, a beneficial role to play. Um, that's not to say that every professional intermediation of surrogacy is done ethically or um, well, or that the people who are doing that are necessarily motivated by a desire to bring children into the world and make it a better place. Um, but I think that we could craft out a middle path between the um, commercial markets of America and our insistence on the purest driven snow form of altruism in Australia, which means that we have 16 babies born here through regulated treatment in a year and hundreds and hundreds born abroad. So I, I think bringing the mismatch of those things into closer alignment at home is a start. But I also think we need to work with our neighbours and work with fertility practitioners abroad through professional societies um, and work with governments abroad to talk about, you know, Australia's done assisted reproduction now, I think, very well for, you know, 30 years. We've learnt some stuff. You know, we've learnt some stuff about things like donor anonymity. I think the evidence base is very clear uh, that, that that's a mistake, um, that, that not every child wants access to that information, but that the... Um, Prevention of access to that information is a material harm uh, to many kids born through uh, assisted conception. We could be working with providers elsewhere to provide that evidence, to talk them around uh, to, to changing their practices to allow for that. So, again, it's not one answer and it's not going to be a quick answer, but I think it has to be on both fronts. It has to be here and abroad. Yeah, and um, how likely do you think that the for-profit clinics abroad are um, going to want to be part of that conversation? Look, uh, strangely, I think, I think quite willing, actually. Um, and it's a very... I know that sounds counterintuitive, um, but certainly when I've spoken to parents undertaking surrogacy, I've tried to share with them my knowledge of what the evidence is about children's needs, and I've tried to encourage them to consider things like identity disclosure, even if the clinic abroad doesn't do that or the agent doesn't do that, just to say, look, this is something you might regret in five years' time or 10 or 15. Um, likewise, I've tried to draw their attention to some clinical practices that are not um, as safe as they would be at home. Um, and what happens is people go to those places and say, oh, but, you know, I've heard that this should be good. And there is actually sounds so free market of me, but there's like a market response where the providers go, oh, there's a demand for that, Australians want that, and, and actually start reacting to that. Likewise, if we did put in place through our family court process, if we did put in place a parentage process uh, federally, um, and we did have best practice guidelines, which again is something that I, I think we should do, and we had those elements in best practice guidelines, we promulgated those, they were transparent, and we said to international providers and to parents... If you do these things, you're more likely uh, to get a fast track to parentage or you're more likely to not have trouble with the citizenship process or whatever, or this is just good for your child uh, or a good thing to do. Um, all of those things are, I think, quite likely uh, to have an influence. Well, that's very encouraging. Um, thank you, Jenny. I think we'll move on to speak to Andrea because she's been collecting some of this evidence that, that Jenny's been talking about. Um, Andrea, your approach in cross-border surrogacy from your research background in medical anthropology and your extensive fieldwork and research in Thailand, um, 
We've, we've all, it, it's obviously been very topical here, the baby gammy case. It hit the national media, international media, I should say, in August this year. And so surrogacy practices have come under serious scrutiny, um, causing what you've um, termed crisis and confusion. Can you tell us a bit about the cultural and biopolitical aspects of the crisis and why Thailand became a reproductive travel destination? Sure. Um, it's just such a small question to answer. <laughs> and you only have ten minutes. <laughs> just throw me off the stage if I keep going on. Um, thanks for that question. Um, I'd just start by, um, at one level, you know, thank you, Jenny, for your comments, because I think it is really important that um, any interventions we make in this field are based upon evidence. Um, what I'm trying to do as a medical anthropologist is collect stories from intending parents and from surrogates. So at one level, I'll take this opportunity just as a call. If you're out there and you'd like to speak to me sometime at, uh, in total anonymity, um, please get in touch with me afterwards. I'm recruiting people currently for this study. We're trying to find out what the real and lived experience is for parents um, going overseas because without that, it's uh, the whole debate gets mired in generalisations and stereotypes and controversies and, and as you say, cause celebs. So I think um, there is a real need for more evidence base um, in the whole discussion that's taking place. Now, back to your question. Um, uh, Thailand... Um, most people think that there was no regulation in Thailand. In fact, there have been regulations under the Thai medical guidelines um, on surrogacy and, and other forms of assisted reproduction for a very long time. Um, the fact was, however, they were not enforced and they had very little, they had no legislation behind them, so they were sort of like a toothless tiger. And that's really created the position which clinics have been largely um, left to themselves to decide upon the practices that they would do. Um, now, the Thai medical profession is a very sophisticated... The, the Thailand has a, a, an incredibly sophisticated and expert um, assisted reproductive industry there, um, most of whom, I might add, have been trained in Australia, um, and, and were making decisions based upon their experiences and their um, own ethical guidelines as to what they felt was appropriate within their clinics. Clearly, however, as current events have shown us, um, the reliance upon a sort of self-regulation by, by doctors and clinics themselves, um, under the pressure, we might add, of a lot of facilitators and agents who are trying to make money out of this industry, has really led to some very unfavourable outcomes. But we have to remember that it's also led to a lot of favourable outcomes for many parents as well. So one thing as an anthropologist I learn is that um, it's, you shouldn't generalise about places and people. And uh, I think that's one thing that we need to um, really take away from this is the fact, as Jenny said, that this is a very complex and nuanced um, debate. They're very difficult uh, human relationships involved and it's very easy to, to jump on one side or the other without really taking in that complexity into account. Um, in terms of Thailand, so they've got a great medical infrastructure, have a great service infrastructure, um, direct flights from Australia. It's cheap. Many Australians are familiar with Thailand. All of these factors have contributed to the development of the industry in Thailand. Uh, one of the major things that developed it was the fact that India changed its laws 
and all of a sudden Thailand became a more popular destination for couples seeking commercial surrogacy, particularly for gay couples, um, as, as India started closing its doors and making it more difficult to undergo commercial surrogacy there for gay couples. Thailand's legal frameworks, however, have never been particularly... Um, good for commercial surrogacy. Um, there are difficulties in terms of who is recognised as the legal mother. So the woman who gives birth is the legal mother. There's been ambiguity over whether one needs to adopt the child, exactly what paperwork needs to be done. Parentage laws can be a little bit murky. Um, and it seems as though a variety of um, arrangements have been made by couples um, to facilitate um, their their relationship and to be legally verified within the country. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole issue, which no doubt at some point we'll be talking about today too, about parentage and bringing children back. As you're aware, Thailand has currently changed its law, but again, many people have seen this as something that's been a very quick knee-jerk reaction to the baby gammy case, and in fact, it isn't. That law's been on the books for 10 years. It was uh, approved by cabinet by the Thai cabinet in 2010, um, and I've been watching it, wondering when in the next, you know, for four years I've been watching this legislation, wondering when it would actually go to parliament. The fact has been, of course, that Thailand's government has not been particularly stable of late, and that's really been the major reason why this legislation has not come forward earlier. Um, and then we know that there's been controversies. In 2011, there was a, a case of Vietnamese women who were trafficked um, to Thailand to act as surrogates. They were charged with trafficking. Um, and yet, at that point, the legislation wasn't brought in. So it does raise questions as to... Um, it hasn't been very high on the priority list um, until recently. And uh, one of the, my understanding of the issue is that um, the case of sex selection has really been one of the issues that brought the current legislation into force, not the baby gammy case. But then the baby gammy case and, and other cases since then has really um, forced, if you like, the, the government to act um, and be seen to act. And hence they're bringing in the... Uh, current legislation. It's now been approved by the lower house. It still has a whole process to go through before it becomes enacted as law and promulgated by His Majesty the King. Um, but clearly it will have ramifications for couples who um, have been thinking about going to Thailand for commercial surrogacy. And I might add the over 100 couples who have currently got contracts in Thailand. Um, I've spoken to some of them and that's where the, the confusion and the crisis comes in. There's some very anxious couples wondering what's going to happen to their surrogacy arrangements, wondering about the welfare of their surrogates, wondering about the welfare of embryos that they've left frozen in clinics that have been shut down, um, trying to contact facilitation companies and agents who no longer exist um, and not very sure about what the future is going to hold for themselves and their families. So... Um, it, it would seem that Thailand is uh, moving towards a, a phasing in and certainly recognise the difficulty that parents are in who currently have contracts. But under the current law, there will, it will be almost impossible to have uh, an international commercial surrogacy arrangement in Thailand. Um, commercial surrogacy will be banned. A surrogate must be... Um, well, this is my understanding of the current legislation. It may still change. There may be amendments that come through. Um, the surrogate will be recognised as a surrogate and the intending parents will be recognised as parents, but surrogates must be related to the parents. So that's going to make it extremely difficult for anyone who's not in country and Thai or married to 
a Thai um, who has a sister or a sister-in-law who's willing to be a surrogate to have a surrogacy arrangement. Um, there's a couple of other provisions that, um, again, will tighten things, so no facilitators will be able to uh, advertise, surrogates will not be able to advertise, but basically it just makes it very clear under the law that commercial surrogacy will be banned. Um, so I think I'll just leave it there. Yeah. Well, a further question, a broader question rather than just on Thailand. From your field work with intending parents and their surrogates currently expecting children, how do they perceive their relationships? Um, do, do they read them as commercial? Do they see them as family? Um, do they share similar understandings about the significance of genetic or gestational or birthing relationships? Um, that's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think, um, again, it's difficult to generalise, but within... Um, I, I think we have to be very careful of seeing um, commercial relationships or monetary exchanges as completely opposite and to um, effective relationships. Um, and I think in many cultures there is not a clear distinction between monetary relationships and emotional relationships and caring relationships and nurturing. And in many cultures, the two um, often are interwoven seamlessly. So it is possible for people to um, see themselves as having, as, as, as a giving, if you like, a, in a gift relationship, in an effective relationship, a kinship relationship, and also be receiving money for services. I don't think, I think that's something that's a particularly Western construct um, and comes right through all of our reactions to surrogacy. And I don't think that's um, the case in, in other places necessarily. Within Thailand, there's a couple of cultural values which often uh, people talk about, um, one of which is umbun. And that's a term that's now been uh, used. It came in fairly recently. I've been doing a, a look at the history of surrogacy and how it's been portrayed in Thailand. And umbun literally means to carry merit. So it's referring to the Buddhist idea that um, one accumulates merit through meritorious deeds in one's life. And um, so that's the bun part. And um is the term used to carry children. That term has now become the term that's used to describe surrogacy. And I think it it shows that people recognise surrogacy as an act that does involve a woman undergoing considerable sacrifice to create another life. And it's that relationship between her and, if you like, the reincarnation of another uh, living being um, that creates merit for her. So many of the surrogates talk about the merit of their work. Uh, regardless of what their relationship is, that relationship with the child is one uh, in Thailand which would be considered a bun kun relationship. A child has um, a sort of a, a, a reciprocal relationship of um, duty and obligation to a mother in particular for having gone through pregnancy and given birth to a child. So, um, there, so in Thailand there's other ideas in India as well which do, I think, show that these relationships are not necessarily seen in exactly the same terms as they are in Australia or elsewhere um, and that there are some cultural nuances to those relationships which are often missed in all of this debate. Um, in terms of the relationships between parents and surrogates, most of the parents I've spoken to um, have tried very hard to 
try to ensure there's some form of relationship with the surrogates. The difficulty, of course, is in most cases they cannot speak Thai, they will get interpreters, but there is a huge gap between understanding. It's very difficult to do these sorts of relationships through translators. Um, and, of course, there is the question once couples are back home and having their families, how you maintain that relationship over Skype with no... Inter- you know, that's really, really hard to do. So whilst there's really good intentions, um, often the practicalities of it intervene. It can be very difficult to keep those relationships going. Thanks, Andrea. We're going to sort of shift the focus a little bit with Kerry. Um, um, and Kerry's given a paper earlier today um, that takes a look at a detailed look at the surrogate mother's right to informed consent and how that might be considered within the context of cross-border commercial surrogacy. So that that my question to her is directed to this idea of um, of how that notion that comes out of our law of informed consent um, can be considered in this context. So, Kerry, you've spent your whole professional life, really, um, or at least the 20-odd years that I've known you, um, researching and writing about law and medicine, longer yes. than, you've, than I've known you, actually, and particularly reproductive rights. So you're using that very central concept of informed consent to try and mm. deal with some of the dilemmas that arise here. So what is the medical model of conform, informed consent and how does it apply to cross-border commercial surrogacy? Well, what I'm trying to focus on, or what I'm trying to do, is focus on the um, surrogate mother. And I'm talking about surrogate mothers who live in cu- countries in India, not so much Thailand now, Um, where they're very, very poor and mostly illiterate. So, and I thought that by going through the basic sort of um, principles underlying consent, we could get a sort of sense of idea of how possibly we could empower these women. So if we start, well, first of all, there is the question of exploitation. And there are various various discussions about that. But basically... My view is that the exploitation is that in many cases women's rights are taken away from them so that the right to self-determination is overlooked and quite often in in these arrangements women don't know, don't don't want to know perhaps what's going to go on. Basically they might just want the money at the end of it but um, they are, they should be, I think they should be empowered. Now, one way I thought of was just to look at the principles, the underlying thing of valid consent, which we all take for granted in our medical system in Australia and in England and in America. So if you don't give a consent to um, a procedure, the doctor can be taken to court, it can be an assault or a battery or whatever, or a criminal offence. So if we look at this model... It's a model, an ethical consent model, very basic, um, that would respect the human rights of surrogate mothers and provide some, pro- some protection against ex- exploitation. So first of all, the mother must have the capacity to give consent. She must be competent. That means she must be an adult for a start and then she must understand what the decision she's making is. And that's the same for us in every um, medical 
arrangement that we have, we, we have to be ha competent. If we're not competent, uh, we, can't, we can't give a, a consent. The second thing is the, the, she has the right to give a free consent and she has the right not to be subjected to coercion or under, undue influences. Now, there are, there are, there's quite a lot of research on this. Women have been pushed around by their families, their husbands, and so on, to go and get money so that they could get a build, build a house, to send the, then send the children to school and so forth. Now, in many cases, that's what the, winter, the women might want to do. But what I'm saying is that we, ne we need to be much more careful about encroaching on their rights. So there have been some really nasty sort of situations in um, one area. There was a report from the BBC about a number of women, about 20 women or so, who'd been taken to a Taiwanese agency place and forced to be at surrogates. So it's very important this, this consent is respected. Another part is an ex of, a, of a consent, a valid consent, is that the person has to be informed adequately and the, first, the person must understand the contractual conditions. So it seems from what I've read about that quite often these women don't actually know what's in the contract. No one's ever bothered to tell them sometimes or, or in other cases they may not be able to understand it. So that's really a very important part of a consent the other thing is information, and that's probably what most people sort of um, think about when we're talking about consent, which is often referred to as informed consent. They need to be adequately um, informed about the nature of the psychological and physical risks associated with the transfer of the embryo, pregnancy, birth, and postnatal issues. So psychological... She's not going to know how she's going to feel when she delivers a baby and then has to be separated from it. So it's very important that she has some, some counselling or some support um, in making that decision as, as to whether she can really do that or not. Physical risks still, because there are always physical risks with a, with a, a pregnancy. And a lot of the women wouldn't really know exactly how it was all going. I mean, how that worked with the embryo and so on. And also she should have a choice over what sort of birth she wants to have, whether she wants to have a caesarean or um, vaginal dessert, um, birth. The next one that's very important, the specified boundaries of her consent to treatment. So when she signs the, when she signs the consent at the beginning of the arrangement with the, with the um, clinic or the agency... She needs to be told and she needs to think about what would she do if she had triplets and the intended parents didn't want triplets, they only wanted one child or two. She's entitled to know that these things could happen and also if it does happen, she has to make the consent. They can't pin her down with a contract legally. I mean, I think it's legally in Thailand. I don't know Thai law or Indian law, so I shouldn't be so um, adamant. But it's, she's always got the rights about her, over her body. The other thing would be um, if there was a problem and there have been reported problems of um, the fetus having a disability and the 
parents not wanting to have anything, anything to do with it. If she doesn't want to go ahead, she doesn't have to, she can make arrangements to, for um, an abortion. But if she wants to go ahead, she wants to keep the fetus, then she's got that right. So there, she, it's, it's overlooked quite often, I think, that there are these further boundaries rather than saying, OK, going to be a surrogate, going to have this sort of birth, and that's it. It's much more complicated, and I think the woman should be given more power with that knowledge. Um, Kerry, you've talked about voluntariness. That sort of underlies a lot of what you've been talking about just now. Yes. Um, it's one of the three key aspects of informed consent in a medical um, context. Um, and you've mentioned that some of the research indicates that some women are agreeing to be surrogates um, in, in a circumstance where there's coercion or economic pressures. Um, do you think that better consent procedures will fix this? It could be fairyland, really, because we don't, I don't know, you know how, how these things work in practice. Um, but if you, if you train doctors and clinics and so forth, and if you impose sort of um, rules on in, in admission to Australia, that can be some, one way of saying you know, that this is how you should be doing it. Um, it could be a condition attached to the uh, citizenship or whatever, that, that, that this, wasn't, this woman didn't have, wasn't, she wasn't pressured into having this baby. So, but I think, you know, it's probably very difficult to apply any of these things. <laughs> They're just ideas. Thanks, Kerry. I'm going to pass on to Rhonda now. Um, Rhonda, you're coming at this from a health law perspective as a feminist and um, as a human rights scholar. And you're going to, um, we're going to ask you to speak about the current situation in New Zealand. Um, as you describe it, the only way for commissioning parents to become legal parents in New Zealand is through adoption. Um, what kinds of difficulties do um, potential or parents, intending parents, face having um, engaged in cross-border surrogacy and then wanting to have their parenthood recognised in New Zealand? Thanks, Leanne. Well, I'd start by saying I think there are advantages and, and good reasons for requiring um, or having a system in place for children to be formally adopted by their intending parents because this does put their relationship on a firmer footing and although I'm not a psychologist, I would imagine this is going to be helpful for that child's and for the parent's sense of well-being and identity going forwards. However, with an international surrogacy, um, there's an interaction between the uh, immigration policy, more in immigration policy than law at this stage, and the family law. Um, and I'm thinking specifically about New Zealand because it, it's slightly different, a variation of the same here, I understand. Uh, for instance, or actually perhaps I'll just describe a, a, a scenario. So the scenario would be the, um, the child would be born overseas. Uh, the intending parents would apply for a visa for the child to enter New Zealand... 
uh, with, with the intending parents after its birth, so perhaps when it's a few weeks old. And to get this, there's an informal process in place um, on a discretionary process um, where the Minister um, of Immigration can decide on a case-by-case basis whether to grant this visa. And the purpose of the visa will be to enable the family to enter New Zealand for the child to be adopted through the New Zealand family courts. Um, so that's all done on the level of policy rather than law. However, the the policy requirements are quite interesting and there's a, a publication... Um, a policy statement by, I think it's the Department of Child, Youth and Family and Department of Immigration and Department of Internal Affairs in New Zealand um, outlining their expectations for international surrogacy involving New Zealand. And, for example, they require DNA, DNA tests to show a genetic link between the intending parents and the, and the child and there has been um, one known New Zealand case and no doubt other cases where, in fact, um, DNA tests has shown there is no genetic link with the child and that's caused problems. Uh, the immigration um, policies also um, ask for information on the consent of the gamete donors, um, which is something which is not considered relevant in terms of um, the laws on parental status. Um, the immigration policy also leads into family law because granting that visa which enables the child to enter New Zealand effectively appears to determine the path that um, the, the legal path that the parents then need to walk in, in order to adopt the child so it um, by, by enabling the child to become resident in New Zealand, the chances are that the child can then be adopted via the domestic adoption legislation instead of being treated as an international um, adoption. Um, and so that's the way the family court has, for the most part, dealt with it. And, of course, there's always that problem. If the visa expires, what's going to happen next? Under immigration law, if a visa expires, a child will be required to leave the country. Um, and so it's unsatisfactory that there isn't a better integration. Um, in fact, the other one I didn't mention is that, um, of course, the well-being of the child isn't part of immigration law, but it's obviously central to family law. So any, um, I would argue we need one system which integrates both of those, um, the immigration rules and the, and the adoption rules, um, that also places, um, t- takes into account um, the rights and interests of the child. Um, Rhonda, I mean, so far we've really talked about regulation at a national level um, in all the papers that we've, we've had so far, but I know that there were hints in your paper about an international, um, an international convention um, for surrogacy. So could, could you... So if we, if we were to have a surrogacy-specific um, convention, like we have the Hague Convention in relation to child abduction or in relation to adoption, can you elaborate on, on, on what you think that would look like? Sure. So, yes, yeah, so we have a currently an, an adoption convention which um, puts in place a process to facilitate inter-country adoption. And there have been ideas circular, circ- 
circulating in a number of circles about an equivalent convention for international surrogacy. I would say I don't think that's sufficient. We would also need to look at the domestic laws in every country um, and it's a much more realistic goal to start with domestic law reform before looking at international law reform. Um, but in terms of what a surrogacy convention might look like, um, probably the only thing we can do at this stage is think about what the principles might be um, that guide the development of that sort of convention. And it would obviously need to um, include principles to do with the best interests of the child, but also the interests and recognition of the role of the surrogate mother and her rights, her reproductive freedom, her autonomy over her body, uh, protection against exploitation by agencies or by intending parents, and also um, protection for in intending parents against exploitation by surrogates or agencies. And um, there hasn't been much talk of that um, so far, but I have heard stories about intending parents, particularly in domestic surrogacy arrangements where they've, they've made an informal arrangement with somebody they know um, where the intending parents can... You know, the, the woman does have um, an embryo that's been produced by their gametes inside her and, and she's able to sort of extract more and more gifts. Um, so looking at all of, all of the parties involved and making sure that their uh, rights are respected appropriately. I think a, a surrogacy convention would also put in place a centralised system of some sort, and that may be where we can learn from the Hague Adoption Convention um, in order to um, facilitate both making sure that the consistent standards applied across the world and also that uh, the procedures are efficient because it's in nobody's interests if this becomes a long, drawn-out process with um, uncertainty about the outcomes. So, so central agencies... Um, and another key uh, factor would be um, freedom of information about genetic identity for the child. Um, and one thing I would say is the concept of habitual residence, which is played in the law has played a, a big role in international adoptions um, should, and, and has been applied in practice to the adoption of surrogate-born children, um, I think actually is misplaced. Um, the way that works is if a child is seen to be habitually resident in an overseas country and they want to move to New Zealand or Australia, um, that become, that's an international adoption. If the child is habitually resident in New Zealand and wants to be and is going to be adopted in New Zealand, that's not. So habitual resident all turns on habitual residence. However, for an international surrogacy arrangement, it's always intended that the child will reside somewhere other than where they are born. So it's a little bit odd to ask of this child as soon as it's been born, where is it, you know, where is it habitually resident? Where, where's its intention to live? Um, it seems artificial, so that's, that's a slightly more specific um, thing that I think needs to be questioned if we're going to look at taking principles, for instance, from the Adoption Convention towards the Surrogacy Convention. Thank you. It's a nice segue into Claire's, um, Claire's uh, talk. Claire's background is, as I've mentioned before, in international human rights. Um, 
Claire, Australia is a signatory to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. We have been for a very long time. Um, is that enough to ensure what you see as the key priority in cross-border surrogacy, protecting the child as the most vulnerable person involved in these arrangements? Thanks, Leanne. Um, maybe if I can just start by a quick comment on why um, my, my argument is that it's the child who's often most vulnerable in international commercial surrogacy situations. And this isn't to say that there aren't other vulnerable parties. Clearly there are, as we've heard today. Um, but the reason why I think the child is particularly vulnerable is because of their centrality to all of these arrangements. The one thing that commercial surrogacy um, arrangements have in common is that they're all existing um, and driven towards producing a child. The child is also really vulnerable given that they lack agency and personal autonomy and this is particularly um, concerning given the way that children's rights are at risk immediately after they're born through commercial um, surrogacy at the cross-border level. The child also lacks in these situations a clear legal status um, and this raises risks for the child's rights and often this comes about because of conflicts and gaps in national um, legislation and policy on surrogacy. And then as we've seen in cases um, like the ones that have recently hit the media in Australia, the child um, is open to the possibility of abandonment. So these are just some of the reasons why I think the child is particularly vulnerable. And then, Leanne, you've asked me whether the CRC is enough to um, protect the child. And I'll say no, not on its own, certainly not. However, I really do think that the CRC is a powerful tool um, for us to look at as a start point for how we can um, deal with protecting the child in these situations. And that's because the CRC is... Um, the world's most widely ratified international human rights instrument. I think only three countries have not ratified it. And it sets out a, a framework for us to work with of minimum standards and norms relating to the rights of the child. And it also provides particular rights that are really relevant in international commercial surrogacy situations. So, for example, the child has a right um, to grow up in a family environment, to know and be cared for by their parents, a right to preserve their identity, a right to be registered immediately following their birth. Um, and then children with disabilities, for example, are given some level of special protection under the convention. And as well, it sets out key principles for how we deal with children, so in particular um, the principles of non-discrimination and the best interests of the child are relevant. So I think it gives us a framework to work with, um, but it's not enough on its own because we do um, have these gaps and conflicts in national laws, we don't have any international regulation, and that's led, led us to a very incoherent um, status quo. But I think from the CRC, we can draw out some fundamental um, principles for how we approach protection of the child in international commercial surrogacy situations, focusing on those core rights that I've mentioned. And I think these could be quite useful for informing the development of national legislation and policy that regulates um, international commercial surrogacy in the short term and then in the long term to, as um, Rhonda touched on, to 
influence and inform the development of an international regulatory framework. So yes, it's a start point, um, and I think we need to bring it to bear through infusing it through regulation, basically. So in the, in the formal paper, which of course we're not, you, you aren't actually reading here and now, um, you talked about the existing provisions in the convention being designed to prevent trafficking in children. Um, and the Swedish journalist and activist Kesa Ekes Ekman was in Australia in October um, talking at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And she thought all surrogacy amounted to, trial, to child trafficking. So I'm being a bit controversial. Um, have you got a view? Um, are we faced with two contradictory ideas here? One around kind of commodification of children and um, uh, a, a concept, sort of an ownership concept, and the other a family concept, you're part of, you belong to me because we're a family? Very interesting question <laughs> that certainly doesn't have a, an easy answer. Um, and as far as I understand Ekman's argument, she's really saying, I guess she's making two um, points around the trafficking argument. The first, and these really hinge on this notion that international commercial surrogacy is a response, um, I guess, that we can characterise through the prism of demand and supply. And I think um, in the first instance she's saying that um, international commercial surrogacy is human trafficking because of how it treats um, women, particularly surrogate women. And here she makes the analogy between international commercial surrogacy and prostitution. And she draws that analogy on the basis that there's a shortage um, and so that these things exist because of that shortage. Um, and that there's also, a, um, I guess, an incentive that people get driven into um, selling their bodies in a way, and in both situations we could argue that it's selling the body um, in order to make a, a profit. And in the developing world what we're seeing is that um, in some instances women are going into these situations um, on a rational, informed basis we have um, research that shows that, but in many other situations, women are being pressured into these situations without um, full knowledge of what they're going into, and, um, and then that raises the spectre of exploitation. I think, secondly, Ekman is also saying that um, international commercial surrogacy amounts to trafficking because it is trade in children. Um, I think if you look at the definition of trafficking under the protocol, um, we've got three factors that have to be fulfilled. So the first one around recruitment or transfer or transportation of a person. The second around the means of how that is done. And here um, it has to be either by force or threat, that sort of um, characterisation. And thirdly, the purpose for which the person's being trafficked, so um, around that's around power and control over the body and exploitation of the person. I think that, for me anyway, um, there's an argument to be made that in some situations, and in particular a good case that stands out is the case of um, the Vietnamese women in Thailand a few years ago, I think 
a case like that, it's clear that those women were trafficked um, for the basis of surrogacy. But I think when it comes to um, her argument that this is um, trafficking in children, always, I think that's less clear-cut. For me, though, what, um, what is perhaps more clear is that this can be characterised as sale of children. Um, and under the optional protocol to the CRC, um, the definition of sale of children is wide, um, a child being transferred by any person to any other person um, for remuneration or for any consideration. And I think if we look at what's happening in international commercial surrogacy, there's a clear argument to be made that that is what is happening. Um, but the flip side of that is that some people will argue that, no, this is a sale of a reproductive service, service only. Um, but it is difficult to get away from that point that it is a child who is essentially the product of these um, arrangements. And I think that's really one of the thorniest issues that sits at the heart of how we are actually going to um, go forward with any kind of approach um, consistent with international human rights law at the international and national level. Thank you very much. Um, my temptation is to open it up to the panel to speak to each other, but I'll save that um, towards the very end. I'll, I'll let them have a, a, a say that's not prompted by a question from the audience. But I think now I'd like to open up um, to you. We've got a couple of roving microphones, so we'll ask that you wait um, for a microphone before starting a question. I will also remind you, um, I think Nick said it at the start, that this session is being recorded. So I would ask you, I mean, I would always ask you to be polite um, and considered and concise. And we're looking for questions rather than, long, than another um, statement. But with all those caveats, which you have to have because I'm a lawyer, um, and you have to know your rights and... Um, also, as Jenny said, your responsibilities, the converse of your rights. I would like to open the floor up to questions. Thanks very much. Um, I'm Angela Savage. I'm a PhD student in creative writing. So a bit, bit kind of... Lateral, but it was a really interesting panel presentation, and it's a, a really great kind of uh, example of the complexity of the issues and how there's a, it's almost like a prism, and each way you tilt it, there's a different kind of take on it. So thank you very much for your contributions. Um, I would like to ask Andrea whether you have any um, sense of a feminist response in Thailand amongst local feminists to surrogacy. Um, and likewise, whether the uh, what the um, relationship has been between the the local surrogates and um, the gay couples in particular, I know we've heard some very strong stories about uh, the success, in a way, I guess, of, of some of the stuff that Jenny mentioned about kind of queering families and and having a very expanded notion um, compared to perhaps the US experience. Double-barrel question. Okay, thanks. Um, I'll try and keep my responses um, as concise as your question. Um, 
In terms of uh, feminist responses to surrogacy in Thailand, there certainly has been work by a Foundation for Women, uh, which has been looking at the legislation. And in fact, um, in, a, in a sense, uh, is partly responsible for the many protections that are, that are in the current legislation for surrogates, because there was great concern um, when... The, you know, there was no regulation of surrogacy. There certainly, and there was mooted uh, legislation over the years when this reproductive um, technologies draft bill was being drafted, um, that there wasn't enough protections for local surrogates. So the Foundation for Women certainly have been involved um, in lobbying for and, and held workshops and things, lobbying for greater protections for surrogates in Thailand. I don't know of any immediate responses at this point in time uh, to the whole current situation, but certainly um, uh, some of the protections, so the fact that um, they, there is to be a sort of regulatory independent body to look after surrogates' interests um, under the new legislation, that really is a direct result of some of the lobbying of some of those groups. Um, in terms of your questions for, for relationships between surrogates and gay couples, within Thailand, um, I mean, just as, as anywhere, there's a variety of responses to uh, gay couples. Thailand in general, however, recognises a third gender. For those of you who, you know, you're starting me off on an anthropological question here. This could get really long. Um, but um, in general, there is a, a greater acceptance of uh, what are termed gatui relationships, um, of third gender relationships. There's certainly greater tolerance, and you know it's yeah of of gay couples. I think so. I don't think that there's necessarily great antagonism by surrogates if they find out that they're carrying children for a gay couple. I don't think that's generally speaking. Um, necessarily seen as a, as a major issue by some. But, of course, we're talking about individuals who all have carry different opinions. So, you know, again, it's impossible to generalise about this. Um, however, it is true to say that the legislation in Thailand, the current legislation at this point in time, is distinctly heteronormative and uh, will be... And, and assisted reproduction in general in Thailand under its regulations has always said that it must be a heterosexual couple. Now, the fact that that's been completely ignored by clinics up until this point of time really shows that for many people in Thailand that's not necessarily seen as an appropriate norm. But um, the current legislation that's coming in again states it must be a married heterosexual couple. So um, whether that gets amended in the next few months, we'll have to see, but that's what it is currently. So it's this difficult thing where the public face of, um, is, is one of, of intolerance and yet uh, normative uh, practice within Thailand is often one of great tolerance. So it's, again, not that that helps, in a sense, uh, in fostering any uh, great sense, um, you know, as you were saying, the level of stigma I think is still there when you have this disparity between what's legal and, and what's accepted practice. You know, it doesn't help people live their lives uh, with a great sense of security, but yeah. Cressida uh, Lyman from the University of Western Sydney. Um, a question I think for, for Jenny, and thanks to everyone, as Angela said, for um, a great range of issues. Um, so I guess my question, Jenny, is um, I agree with you about this need for 
basing policy on an evidence-based level and this avoiding this need to react to the um, sensationalised cases. I suppose one issue that's arisen is if we follow over the last 20 years or also um, the changing um, nature of practices and arrangements. So if we've all been caught a bit napping with international commercial surrogacy and this need to catch up of, oh, we lack the evidence, but we need a legal solution now. So in a way, then, we need to balance that time lag and actually have either general principles or informed by either feminist theory or other approaches. Um, otherwise, we risk, of course, the regulation and if you... When, so, so the question would be, OK, if the purpose of regulation is to maximise the beneficial side and minimise the harm side, within that there's still judgments that need to be made about what is it we want to... Um, what are the benefits we want to minimise. So I'm just wondering about how you would approach that balance between that time lag between waiting for the evidence-based and, in the meantime, the need to actually act now? I think that's a really good question, and I think the answer is that it is a balancing act. Um, so I don't think we should say, oh, well, no-one really knows what happens to kids born through international commercial surrogacy, so let's just do nothing for 20 years while we you know, gather some evidence. Um, but I do think that before we, before we regulate, we shouldn't do so on the basis of an assumption that because it's new and different, it's harmful. Um, so we haven't seen this before, therefore it's bad for children. We don't know who these people are and we haven't, you know, they seem different to us, so it's harmful for children. So I think we have to, before we regulate, first of all, take just a good searing look into our own assumptions and prejudices before proceeding on the basis that because something is new and different, um, it's going to be harmful. Um, I think we can, um, we can learn lessons from other forms of reproductive practices or from domestic surrogacy. We can draw analogies across, but again, we have to be cautious in doing that. We can't just say, oh, well, you know, didn't we learn some lessons from adoption, so we have to just you know, do surrogacy in exactly the same way. Um, so I think we can work with what we've got, and I think we can see it as a process of change that shouldn't be what it has been to date, which is, um, with surrogacy reform particularly, massive universal assumptions, blanket prohibitions, whacked into place, left there for 20 years, and then everybody wakes up one day and says, oh, isn't Stephen Conroy lovely? Um, let's change all of that now. Um, and, I mean, having analysed the legislative debates in Australia... Um, across all jurisdictions, those debates in Western Australia, they went on for years, 300, 400 different parliamentarians spoke about surrogacy and they talked about what they felt and what they'd read in women's magazines and there were four references in thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of transcript from our elected representatives making laws that were going to probably stay in place for 20 years four references to the research literature on surrogates' experiences uh, and none at all on the literature about outcomes for children <laughs> in surrogacy. So we don't have much evidence to work from, but, gee, we haven't used it yet. Um, so uh, what I would like to see is putting in place regulation based on the evidence that we do have, which we have, I have to just say it again, completely ignored, um, and, and knowing that that should be something that we revisit within 10 years 
actually, that not just kind of going, oh, we have to fix this and then it's really hard and controversial and dangerous and so let's just bury our heads again for another 20 or 30 years. It has to be a work in progress. And, and particularly with transnational practice, it's changing so fast um, that we should see it as a work in progress and an incremental process of change where we feed back in what we're learning as we do it. Um, and so, you know, I, I, with parentage regimes, I think we should look at them five or ten years later and say, has it worked? What went wrong? Um, and be prepared to alter that again. But I think particularly with, con with, with legislation that parliamentarians see as controversial, they're desperate to kick it through and then ignore it. Um, and, and I think we actually need to unpack surrogacy and anything to do with family formation or abortion for that matter and say, do you know what, this is the most intimate and important aspect of people's lives... We need to proceed on the basis of evidence and how people are living those lives. Um, and, and we have to be prepared to update them continually uh, to reflect that reality. Ronley? Hi, I'm Ronley Sifras from Monash University. Thank you all so much for all those um, very interesting, differing perspectives. Um, when we talk about this issue of commercial surrogacy, it strikes me that often the focus is on um, issues of exploitation, which obviously are um, very concerning and, and very serious. Um, it strikes me at the same time that the flip side of that is um, the issue of, of reproductive autonomy. So the fact that, you know, there are clearly women who choose to be surrogates, who exercise their, you know, informed consent and their, um, you know, their reproductive autonomy to do um, something that they want to do, which they feel uh, they will derive a benefit from. And um, by focusing solely on, on exploitation um, and in that way, you know, it, um, sort of regulating down that path, we're perhaps um, actually uh, removing women's reproductive autonomy and violating those autonomy rights. Um, so I'm just wondering um, whether um, anyone from the panel um, can, can comment on that kind of balancing or, or conflict of rights issue and how we actually deal with that, protecting women from exploitation while at the same time uh, uh, respecting their right to reproductive autonomy. Who would like to go first? Because I'm sure there's more than one person wants to respond. Sure Are you referring to women in developed countries or women in developing countries? I think when we talk about exploitation, it seems to me as though it's mainly in the context of developing countries that yeah. we seem to talk about it, although I'm sure there are instances in developed countries as well where it's an issue. And you're saying that they should be able to... Um, they, they've got the right to use their body for that way. Well, I don't think anyone would be... Uh, I mean, not anyone, but not anyone here would be disputing that. That I was talking about yeah. the, the elements of a consent just um, imp imp to empower women who were not empowered and to make sure that people were, they knew what they were doing. Right. Yeah. But I agree. I mean, if, if that's what the person wants to do, of course. Jenny? Oh, I would just add to that that I think that um, counselling processes are a really important part of that and that's something that we, again, we have learnt from domestic surrogacy um, in Australia and actually from commercial surrogacy in the US, um, that, that counselling and intake processes and taking the time with people to talk through their motivations and their expectations is incredibly important and one of the big challenges of 
of cross-border reproductive care more broadly is that everybody's rushing. Um, and with commercialised practices, there is a pressure to rush. And so I think there is a really important role in regulation for slowing those processes down and, and breaking them down into um, discrete aspects of intake and counselling um, so that the chances of um, informed consent are increased. And no system will be perfect, um, but certainly we, we're pretty aware of some of the pitfalls that lead to the lack of informed consent and, and they could be improved. Does anyone else want to comment? Yeah, I guess I'd just like to recognise what you've said because um, as women we are able to grow human beings inside of our bodies and give birth to them and that's an amazing thing and that can be an expression of autonomy. Um, so I agree that we shouldn't get lost in the dialogue of exploitation. Um, the, yeah, the difficulty is going to be, and it probably comes back to Jenny's um, call for, for an evidence base and also to um, Andrea's work developing the evidence base, you know, we're not all the same and um, finding out what really does motivate surrogates to become surrogates is going to be really fascinating. I don't know a lot about that myself but I'm really um, interested to find out and, and whatever we end up with does need to be able to um, both deal with potential exploitation but also... Um, I, I would say facilitate um, um, women's reproductive freedom if, if, if this is the way they want to do it. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have a question over here. Hello. I, my name is Cameron Algie. I'm here from Callaher's Australia. Um, I'm wondering whether I could address my question to Kerry. I'm wondering if you think there are things that we can do better... Uh, by choosing ethical practices within the clinic, then we can, for example, by then by um, uh, making rules and, and regulation. Um, do you, in which country? In in, in, in Australia. In Australia. Mm. Uh, for for example. I suppose most of the things we've been talking about do already done in Australia, in relation to counselling and informed consent and all those sort of things. So what, would it, what else would you think would be appropriate? This is for altruistic surrogacy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's commercial surrogacy that people worry about much more because of all the problems that are associated with it. But they have to, in, in Victoria, they have to go through the um, panel that decides whether or not um, the person's... Um, knows what's going on and she's going to be a suitable person and eligible and that sort of thing. So they do have quite a lot of um, things like that in, in this state. But not every state has um, legislation dealing with this sort of thing. I don't think so. But a lot of the beneficial practices we have in Australia, I think, have, have come about, whether they're in legislation or not, they actually have come about through professional practice yeah. and through um, ethical standards that have developed through... Uh, doctors and clinicians and counsellors doing it and working out what works and what doesn't. And I, and I think that there is really a role for that, that organic body of norms and ethical practices that come out of, of doing it. Um, once we enshrine those in legislation, often they then become ossified uh, and, um, you know, outdated quite quickly. 
Um, and so I think that's actually a very good question when we think about how people are doing it and why they're doing it and, and whether they're in dialogue with each other. And I think the fact that Australian clinicians cannot participate in commercial surrogacy, there's an ethical prohibition on facilitating commercial surrogacy, which means if you walk into a doctor's office and say, oh, I'm thinking of taking my embryo to Thailand uh, because we can't get a surrogate here, the doctor will stand up and leave that room because they dare not talk to you um, because they're worried that if they say anything at all, uh, that they're going to be facilitating commercial surrogacy and they'll lose their licence to practice. And I talk to doctors all the time and I say, well, I don't think this is facilitating. I think that's. I think if you, if you say, all right, you know, I'll help you send the embryo to this clinic or you're giving them advice about where to go to, yeah, that's facilitating. In my view, saying, here are a series of dangerous practices you shouldn't do, here are some questions to ask and some things to think about, I don't think that is facilitating. I think that's giving your patients informed consent and they just go, oh, no, 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 I just leave the room. I don't want to get struck off. And so I actually think that, that prohibition to me prevents them from engaging in beneficial practices and informing their patients and trying to make sure that what their patients are doing are, uh, is safe or safer. Um, and I think there is good evidence from other countries that shared care in cross-border reproduction more broadly of all kinds, shared care where there is a home physician and a treating practitioner abroad and those people talk to each other about the patient, um, their contraindications, their history of care uh, and so on, there's likely to be a better outcome health-wise if those doctors are able to talk to each other. Um, and so, I, again, I think doctors abroad performing these procedures would have a lot to learn from doctors in Australia. Um, and I think that doctors in Australia have a lot to offer the care of their patients if they are travelling abroad. Um, and we don't allow that because of a very broadly worded um, ethical prohibition that has doctors literally, and I mean this, running from the room when people go to them for help. Hannah, you had a question, I think. Um, yeah, thanks, uh, Leanne. My name's Hannah Robert. I'm at La Trobe um, with um, uh, Kerry and Leanne. Um, and I guess I had a question. Um, one of the things um, that was mentioned at the research forum was um, in California they have you, you have the ability to get a pre-birth order. So while the surrogate mother is still pregnant before she's given birth, um, a court can make an order um, about the parentage of the child. Um, and there was some discussion about whether that means that this, the intended parents can then decide, OK, well, we're having a caesarean birth, um, how that fits with the um, uh, mother's uh, reproductive autonomy. I guess my question for the panel from that context was just... Your, your views on a pre-birth order um, as opposed to, I mean, what is the position in New Zealand, Australia, and my understanding is Thailand, is that the woman who uh, gestates and gives birth is the default legal mother. And I just wonder if that's a good kind of backstop position for babies like Baby Gammy um, where the, the intended parents, for whatever reason, don't, don't take the baby home. Who would like to respond? <laughs> well, I can, but does anyone else want to um, Thank you, Hannah. Look, I, um, I have always argued that the, that the surrogate mother should be the mother um, unless and until she relinquishes that child after birth. Um, I think surrogacy can be a beneficial arrangement and a beneficial practice for women and children and intending parents, but not if a woman is coerced or forced to relinquish her child. Um, so for me, um, 
surrogacy, an ethical basis for surrogacy can only coexist with women who relinquish children after birth and, and I think legal parentage supports them at birth to know that it's their decision. Um, and, I, and I think that's in keeping with, with Kerry's position on informed consent there. You don't know how much you're going to love a baby and you don't know whose baby you think that is until it's born. So you could go through a pregnancy thinking, yes, this baby is someone else's, and when it's born, it's not how you feel about it. Um, and I think that the, the reproductive labour, the emotional labour and the physical investment of a surrogate mother in undertaking that pregnancy means that at the point of that disagreement, for me, she wins. Like, no matter whose genetics they are and no matter how heartbreaking that is to the intended parents, for me, that is always going to be her decision at that point. Um, I would also say that it's... it's Pre-birth orders are problematic because it does lead to this ambiguity about who controls the pregnancy. And again, from a feminist position, a pregnant woman's body is hers um, and any medical decision about her treatment and care or the outcomes for her fetus or the delivery of the baby have to be her decisions, uh, regardless of what's in a contract. Um, I'll follow up on that, if this is OK. I think I agree with everything Jenny said about you know, the concerns that she holds about pre-birth parenting orders. Um, there is one thing, though, I think would be useful and that we could learn from that situation, and that's um, attempting to gain some certainty in advance of the birth. So I'm not suggesting I think we should have orders which are made by a court pre-birth, but... Um, it does seem, particularly with the international surrogacies, that a lot of the work and a lot of the discussion and the court looking into the interests of the child doesn't happen until far too late in the process. So if a process could be developed where the questions are asked and the counselling happens and the agreements are put in place pre-birth as much as possible, including any international aspects of that... Um, that may be still, I, I think, consistent with the surrogate mother retaining the right to say, actually, this is my baby, I gave birth through, I carried it in my body, and I'm sorry, I, I want out. Um, so I think we, should, we, we need to try and keep the good, good things from that and learn, learn from ways to make it more efficient and, and reduce harm that way, I'd say. Agree. Agree. <laughs> just, I just want to emphasise, I guess... Um, from the child's perspective as well, bringing that level of clarity prior to um, the, the parents actually wanting to leave India or Thailand and bring the child back to Australia or New Zealand, um, that would actually bring a lot of clarity to their legal status. Um, but I do agree there are um, problems around the consent issue around relinquishment, so perhaps it could be a contingent on relinquishment um, type order. They're just principles. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, thank you. Look, the other thing I've wondered could, could about for quite some time. Excuse me. Could you oh. say your name first? Oh, please? Christine Millward. Um, I've done a lot of work in family law at Melbourne University, but I'm a sociologist, a family sociologist. So I'm always more interested in what happens to the children, really, to be honest. Um, and one of the things that I've wondered about for some time with international surrogacy and with children who then remain in in the other country and stay with a surrogate mother is um, financial support for that child because that child would never have come into existence if it hadn't been from you know rich you know commissioning parents in Australia or somewhere else 
Um, and then, yes, so I'm, is there any... Does the panel know if there's any kind of provision in these contracts about, but if the child was to stay with you, either because we reject the child or because you want to keep the child, um, that we will pay you compensation or something for actually supporting that child? Because the whole thing about this is that very often the, um, the surrogate mother and her family are, could be poverty-stricken or it's certainly not rich, um, you know, and then all of a sudden they might already have two or three children and then they've got another child. And so because I've always been very interested, the other thing I'm interested in is child support if parents then separate in Australia. But that's, you know... But anyway, I just wondered if any of the panel have any idea about that. Who are Claire going? The contracts that I've seen anyway um, haven't had any provisions around if the child... If we decide um, on the basis of the child's birth that we don't actually want to take this child, this is what happens. I've never seen any provisions around that. Um, and I guess it's sort of to include those provisions almost runs counter to um, the aim of the contract in a way because... Um, <laughs> well, no, it doesn't provide a, a fallback, and it's, it's certainly it leaves the um, potential child in a vulnerable position. And I think it's it's interesting that question um, from a, I guess, a perspective of looking at international commercial surrogacy through a lens of is this um, where is this leading us to in terms of global injustice? Certainly, in terms of the demand and supply flowing between the more developed world and the less developed world um, that we're seeing rapidly um, developing. And I think um, as well it then takes us to a question of state responsibility too. In situations where a child um, who has been brought about through the intention of a commissioning couple from Australia or New Zealand then abandons a child in India, for example, should it be the Indian government that actually um, bears responsibility for um, financially and um, serving the welfare of that child as they grow up, or should it actually be the Australian government? Um, that's a, an interesting question that, yeah, we could talk about more, I'm sure. <laughs> Anyone else want to respond? Oh, I'll just um, say one thing, sorry, is, is that um, in terms of... Within Thailand, contracts have never actually had any legal force anyway, so they're not worth the paper they're written on. Um, but also it does raise some of the difficulties when you make these relationships into contractual ones. And um, I think that's, you know, that's the other issue here is what mechanisms of law do you use for this whole arrangement? Um, because do you want these arrangements to fall under contract law or not? It's, you know, that's, that's a separate question, I guess, but it's, yeah. Not if he's not the legal father. Yeah, and that's and they, and that's where I think with the international arrangements we're kind of betwixt and between because we're treating the um, genetic father as a legal father for citizenship purposes, but not for every other legal purpose. Um, so he's kind of a father, but not mostly. Uh, and then you have the question of whether you're applying the law of Australia or the law in which the child was born to determine whether or not obligations exist and what mechanisms you'd use. So you're really. Um, lost in terms of having any remedy. Um, but, but I agree, actually, I've never seen a contract that provides for those things because the people who are writing those contracts don't want people turning their, their minds to those outcomes. 
Um, hi, I'm Alice. I'm a PhD student at um, Swinburne. I'm uh, investigating the relationship between surrogates and intended mothers and how their relationships are sort of maintained over time because we don't really know a lot about that past the pregnancy and birth at this point. Um, and the other side of the what I'm looking at is sort of identities of motherhood and how that relationship might facilitate those identities for both of the women involved. Um, look, I don't... I, before I do go on, I want to say I am also recruiting, like Andrea, so please, if you, are, if you are in a surrogacy arrangement or have done one in the past, please come and see me afterwards. Um, I just wanted to touch on what Jenny said too about sort of the post-birth vulnerability of the surrogate in, in you know, having given birth and perhaps changing her mind um, afterwards. I guess that's one of my concerns and, and one of the things that I wanted to mention um, in terms of what I've experienced so far in my interviews is a lot of these issues seem to be quite prevalent in um, altruistic arrangements within Australia as well. Um, and and in, in particular, I think one of the things that I guess I'm concerned about is the way that we regulate, we can only do so insofar as the... the um, uh, you know, when you give birth, obviously there's a whole range of hormones that are released and um, as much as a surrogate might have that ability in her mind to separate her body during the pregnancy, I think... Um, and she can rationally separate and understand that that baby is for somebody else. I think the body, in some way, is still grieving that loss, and the hormones can really ex um, exaggerate those feelings. So I, I guess my concern, too, is an element of the counselling that, that's happening in Australia. I know that in some states it's compulsory to have counselling prior to entering a surrogacy arrangement, but yet it's not compulsory to undertake that counselling after the birth. Yeah. And I think that's a really important issue in terms of this element of, of the post-birth hormones and things that happen emotionally afterwards. It wasn't so much a question as a comment, yeah. I suppose. So. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, we have... Tamara Arkdecker. Um, I have a question in regards to Ekman and um, her... Can you, can you speak up oh, just a little sorry. bit? Sorry. Um, my question relates to Ekman's position that all surrogacy is a form of prostitution, um, which presumably is influenced by Sweden's approach to prostitution in general, which has sort of been seen as this sort of great sort of feminist approach. Um, how do we reconcile Australia's approach to prostitution, which is comparatively, certainly compared to Sweden's sort of very liberal, and yet we don't seem to be rushing down the path of uh, America and, and going towards commercial surrogacy here, and yet we have quite a liberal approach to women engaging in other forms of prostitution um, for sexual gratification of men, and yet we're not um, endorsing the commercial uh, surrogacy that sort of um, Ekman you know, draws a parallel between anyone care to predict whether Australia is going to head down the path of commercial surrogacy since we're so liberal with prostitution here? Um, I'll, I'll jump in if not. Yeah. Um, look, I think the history of law reform around surrogacy in Australia has been from one of um, moral panic and, and blanket prohibition um, to liberalisation based on that bright dividing line of altruistic and commercial. Altruistic is loving, committed, 
relationships between best friends and sisters who make the ultimate sacrifice for each other, and commercial surrogacy is exploitation where rich women take poor women and take their babies away. And that, that um, dividing line has been absolutely stark in the way that we have conceptualised surrogacy and the way that the debates were made out. And I think some of that was a sheer um, naked pragmatism on the part of politicians who were worried about this being a controversial area of change, and so they just kind of went, but this is good surrogacy and that's bad surrogacy, bad, bad, bad surrogacy, and so we'll only do the stuff that's good. Um, and I think that was very short-sighted. Um, but I also think it reflects the way that we've approached reproduction more broadly, which has been about altruism for gamete donors, um, sperm donors and egg donors, um, altruism for blood donation. We have a kind of a collective ethos that, that we do these things with the body for the good, the collective good. Um, and I think that what that's missed is that all of those people who are making those gifts or those donations are undergoing very different levels of inconvenience and risk and burden. Um, and personally, I, I have argued that we should be thinking about inconvenience, risk and burden and we should be compensating reproductive volunteers differently because of that. And I don't think that stops you being a volunteer. I don't think the mere presence of any money at all means that that's not a gift and that that's not freely given. But I think that the way that we've thought about it till now has been that money taints that relationship and that a woman is not giving informed consent if she's receiving money. Instead of... Yeah. But there's no baby there. Yeah, women's sexuality, definitely, I agree. Women's sexuality, hot topic. Motherhood, even hotter in terms of moral and political perspectives around it. I think the idea that motherhood has to be this sacred thing in which there is, it's, not, it's untainted by anything else to soil it has really permeated what we've done. Instead of unpacking what is that money, how much is it, what's it for, what does it mean for the people there? Um, and I do think that the evidence from America shows us that the mere presence or absence of money is not what makes a, a, a surrogacy arrangement harmful or beneficial for the people involved. Um, yeah, so I, I would see sort of a, a continuum. Um, so, is, and you've got to distinguish, I suppose, between paying expenses and paying for profit. Um, and But I think that I would problematise both of those. Um, with the expenses, uh, New Zealand legislation does allow for expenses to be paid, but not to the woman. The intending parents can pay her doctor for her medical bills. They can't pay money to her. Um, uh, so, and it's quite restrictive what expenses can be paid. So there's an argument about what, how do we actually truly compensate a woman for the inconvenience and loss, etc., that she goes through and going through a pregnancy and birth. Um, you know, it's permanent damage to her body. She's, her life can be at risk um, in some circumstances. Um, there's an emotional uh, issues to deal with. And it's an enormous thing, and I don't think it's recognised properly in general to do with birthing women, but and specifically to do in surrogate situations. So adequately compensating women. And it, for instance, let's say they have to have time off work um, because they're unwell or because, um, you know, I've, I've had friends who've spent 10 weeks in hospital waiting for the birth of their baby because... Um, you know, issues to do with um, the cervix, etc. So, you know, it, it, 
there's all sorts of ways in which the surrogate mother may need, um, may lose out from having gone through that that should be properly compensated for and aren't necessarily. Um, and that may actually add up to quite a lot of money to adequately compensate her for, for what she's done. Um, so then the extension is, do we or do we not allow her to make a profit from that? And um, I suspect my views are a little bit unusual on this, but... I can't see why not. I can't see why women shouldn't make a profit from the use of their reproductive organs if we allow, for instance, prostitution. And, you know, I get paid to use my brain. Um, I, you know, women get expected to use their reproductive organs for free. Um, why should that not be paid? What's, what's the issue? And it probably is something to do with the child, um, but I think we do need to think that through a bit more instead of assuming there's a moral problem with paying for surrogacy. Um, I haven't actually heard many good arguments about why why it's a moral problem. It's usually just a statement that we object to this. Can I respond to that? Yes. I think it is Tell a moral problem. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is a moral problem. I think it's probably the thorniest of the moral problems. I'm not sure I agree with Jenny. <laughs> it's a voluntary blood donor. Um, because I think uh, it comes back to something Claire said about uh, how we want to see ourselves in relation to each other. I actually think one of the strongest arguments in favour of introducing commercial surrogacy in Australia is that there is a quantitative difference between doing a commercial arrangement in your country of origin with people who speak the same language as you, with um, local legal protections, than there is in outsourcing a response to a demand that's not going to go away um, and where our government can kind of close its eyes and its mind to uh, other arrangements that are far from, I would say, consensual by the definition that Kerry's given us today. Um, yes, it's, I think it's really fraught. I think it's highly fraught. Um, but I can't see the demand going away. So I'm, and, and I'm, But I suppose the question I wanted to come back was I was very interested to discover recently that it's actually cheaper to go through surrogacy in Australia in an altruistic arrangement than it is to go offshore. So, the, and notwithstanding the limitations or the difficulties for people in finding a local surrogate, the, the research I have seen done about what motivates people to go overseas for surrogacy has a lot to do with fears associated with women in Australia wanting to keep the children. And the sense, you know, and that's a fear that's been, I think, probably fuelled over years. Uh, not necessarily an evidence base at all, but the sense that, in fact, people are going overseas to countries where women have less control and less agency and, and less informed consent in a way to protect their own interests. And I'm kind of interest, I'm interested in how we, how we can possibly respond to that, respecting the very real desire that people want to have children, the fears they're operating out of, um, what kind of... How can we convince them that a protected... Um, you know, that there are greater protections perhaps in, in not going down a more... What I, what I can't help but seeing as a more exploitative path. Maybe if I can just briefly say, um, there's a couple of academics at Waikato University in New Zealand who are looking at whether we should actually be... and whether it would be helpful for us to treat surrogacy and surrogate mothers as a profession. Um, and so I think that's one of the issues that we'll have to tackle if we 
think that bringing surrogacy home and um, creating a domestic regime that facilitates that, whether we actually want to treat um, surrogate motherhood as a profession and recognise it as such. Um, Personally, I have a few reservations about that, um, but I think there is some merit to it because it would at least start to... um, bring us to a point where we are making some decisions on where we draw the line around um, how much money is going to be paid, what's acceptable, um, because the difficult situation that we have now in New Zealand, as Rhonda touched on, is that we um, allow in altruistic situations to have reasonable expenses paid, um, but people are finding other ways to uh, compensate their surrogate. Um, And so then that raises a whole lot of other questions about people doing surrogacy commercially under the radar in a country um, which prohibits commercial surrogacy. So, yeah. Okay. I think there might be one more. Oh, sorry. Andrew wants to... Sorry, just something else to add there. I think uh, part of the difficulty too in this entire topic is um, the very language that we use. And I guess... Um, drawing parallels between prostitution and surrogacy I think really highlights that, that um, we're talking about very different forms of intimate labour here and and I think uh, the language, you know, it, it is offensive, it's offensive to, to surrogates, it's offensive to many intending parents to say that there's a direct parallel between those forms of intimate labour. So I think, uh, you know, and I've, I've heard surrogates speak of saying, well, I'm not a mother, I'm a gestational carrier, uh, making very fine distinctions about what surrogacy involves for her. So I think... Um, one of the things that interests me, if, if we do go back to these questions around prostitution and that, though, I can't help but think, well, you know, in terms of uh, laws around prostitution, many of them are, are based on a principle of harm minimisation. And perhaps that is something that we need to be looking at domestically within Australia as well. How do we best minimise harms? Um, and, and if that involves making Australia and New Zealand more self-sufficient in terms of surrogacy by making conditions more favourable here for surrogates to act within a protected environment where we've got good regulation, we have um, excellent ethical standards, we know um, that we have mechanisms for ensuring um, that those relationships can have the best possible outcomes, surely that's perhaps an approach that we should be considering in the same ways in which we recognise not all prostitution is done under circumstances that are fabulous, but we've put in protocols and and regulations here to try to protect the parties involved and ensure harm minimisation. So I think... um, So just one thing, yeah, I think we do have to be very careful about the language used. I I think it is very easy to to have snappy... um, snappy parallels um, and whilst I can see continuities in terms of and continuums in terms of intimate labour um, I think we are talking about things which are qualitatively different as well and Jenny wants to have one last one quick word, word. Um, <laughs> just to return to the idea of money again and, and it's something I think about a lot because um, <laughs> I never have any um, <laughs> but 
I think this, the assumption that we take, and it came out of a little bit of what you were saying, was the idea that, that people are spending money to buy control. They're buying something and they, that they want to buy control over the process. And I, I'm not sure that's always right. And certainly um, a number of intended parents, when they speak about their relationship with the surrogate, they say, I'll be indebted to her for my entire life. I will always be in her debt. And they feel profoundly uncomfortable about the idea that they can't give anything back. And we all do, if you think about how we receive gifts in our culture. If someone gives you a Christmas present and you don't give them one back, you feel mortified and rubbish. Um, and in reproductive endeavours, you know, intended parents say, that, you know, she's given me the most precious thing and changed my life forever and I'll always be in her debt. And the idea that they could not pay her something they find exquisitely painful. So the, we have to think about the meanings of money in exchanges. And, and I think, of course, we should always be careful about the idea of money as an improper inducement to surrogates to undertake something that is not the right thing for them and that they might regret for the rest of their lives. Of, like always, we have to think about money as an improper inducement. But we should also be alive to the other nuances and meanings of money as a form of of consideration and recognition and, and reciprocity in that relationship and in a relationship which may be uh, a, a truly beneficial um, and, and mutual one. Thank you. Did you still want to ask a question? Yes, thank you. Yes, yes. Tricia Harper. Um, I've been involved with both committees reviewing adoption legislation and looking at legislation in the area of reproductive technology and surrogacy. I've worked with women who've been surrogate mothers um, uh, with sisters and surrogate mothers who've been commercial. Sorry, is, is that any better? Yes. Do you want me to start again? Yep. Um, Tricia Harper, I've been a member of uh, committees of review at both state and federal level, reviewing both adoption legislation and looking at legislation with respect to reproductive technology and surrogacy. I've also worked with women who've been both... Um, uh, commercial surrogate entered into commercial arrangements as well as arrangements for having a child with a sister. And I guess I wanted to comment on uh, an earlier uh, statement about the importance of evidence-based approaches. And I guess for me, I think issues around the welfare and issues of the child uh, always have to be paramount. And I think the issue of informed consent is a really important factor that needs to be taken into account. And I guess my comment, perhaps rather than a question, is that if one takes an evidence-based approach, then there is a lot of material around in the area of adoption. Now, I know there's an argument that there's not a straight parallel between adoption and surrogacy or any other form of reproductive technology, but in surrogacy, there are some major, major parallels, and I think it would benefit um, any consideration of surrogacy and any arrangements or legislation or regulation that might flow from it to look at what we know from adoption. We know that in Australia, over a quarter of a million women were um, pressured to give up children for adoption because society at the time said child needs two parents, a child needs a father, a child needs material security. If you love your child, you'll give your child to another couple. And about a quarter of a million women did that. And we have research from that. Robin Winkler and Margaret Van Keppel in 1980-81 did the first ever Australian and probably world research 
examining, um, uh, doing a research project on women who had given children for adoption. And many of those women, like surrogates, had thought during the pregnancy, I'm not going to be keeping this child. And many of them, of course, gave their child up to an unrelated couple, um, often where the child was the child of the man they later married um, and fathered other children. And that research showed that after 30 years, the grief for that woman was greater than it was at the time of relinquishment. And I think we need to be aware. And when I've spoken to women who've acted as surrogates, either for a sister or, for, or commercially, that same grief is there. And that then goes to the issue of informed consent. Because there is, although we have changed the laws in Victoria and other states to build in greater protections around the giving of informed consent, I think anyone who's worked in that area, and I think there have been comments already from the panel, that you cannot actually give informed consent till the child has been born. So for a woman to enter into a contract, in inverted commas, um, to... Uh, be impregnated and to carry a child for nine months. Um, to give consent, there's no capacity, I think, to give informed consent in that context. So I think we need to be aware of that. So we also have research in adoption of the importance for children, um, of the need to know the right uh, and have a, a relationship with both parents, to know where they came from, where they got their blue eyes, where they got their musical talent. Again, there's a wealth of evidence in that area. So for children, whether they're born and then um, enabled to be adopted or children who are born to a surrogate and then transferred to the care of another couple, we do have a lot of experience that it may not be a direct parallel but I think is enormously valuable. And I think we can learn all the time. I was speaking at an AGM last week of weekend of the Association of Linkaging Mothers and one of the women there came up to me and said that she had uh, relinquished the child but then gone on to marry the father of that child. They had then create, had to go on to an ART program. They'd created five embryos. They had three children born from three of the embryos and she was asked to donate the embryos. And she said, I agreed to donate the embryos because I thought it would help another couple. And she said, I had no understanding and was given no counselling about the impact that had and the massive grief it caused her. Now, she was lucky enough she'd entered into a contract, interestingly, with the, the couple and she was able to um, both meet and have contact with those two children. But her comment that she felt that she was not able at any stage to give informed consent because of, of the, the lack in that case, I think, of adequate information counselling. So I guess I think there is a lot of evidence around that we can draw on, even if there's not a direct parallel. And I would also finally challenge, certainly in Victoria, that the legislation in Victoria around uh, uh, reproductive technology and surrogacy has, has not in any instance been a reaction, a knee-jerk reaction to a particular case. Um, the Waller Committee's reports were, were long um, long and carefully considered. And so the legislation based on those reports was as a result of that very careful review process. Thank you, Patricia. Um, we've kind of run out of time, so what I'm going to do is ask each of the panel members, starting with Claire, who's still busily writing, um, starting with Claire, to just say something short to wrap up 
in response to everything that's gone on today. Well, coming at things from a, a child rights perspective, which is the focus of my work, I'd simply say that um, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the child is a very vulnerable and arguably the most vulnerable person involved in international commercial surrogacy arrangements for the factors, uh, owing to the factors that I've mentioned today. International law, and especially the CRC, along with other international law treaties, provide us with a framework of minimum standards that we can draw on um, to inform how we approach protecting children in international commercial surrogacy. That's very much a starting point. We should um, formulate some fundamental principles based on international law around protecting the child, and then these should inform national regulation and at the um, long term, um, taking the long term view, international regulation as well, so that the principles of international human rights law are infused into any approach that we take to regulating international commercial surrogacy. Personally, I don't think that a full-on prohibition of international commercial surrogacy is going to be feasible. The genie is out of the bottle. Now it comes down to how we protect those who are vulnerable in these situations. Um, I think, for me, I would like to wrap up with a statement about how, actually, how interesting... This is, has been for me, and how, what, and how important I think it is to have conversations like we are having today in this forum, but also in the research forum we had over lunchtime, because in these sort of conversations we are all learning so much from each other and from the different perspectives that people are able to share um, from their different experiences. This really does have to be an, ex, um, an evidence-based policy formation exercise and um, without really, really broad talking to a lot of people and understanding a lot of different perspectives, um, we won't be able to get that right. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, so, so it would be, I guess, thank you all for coming and contributing and being part of the conversation and how much, um, um, how, how much stimulus I've got from this and um, looking forward to seeing what comes in the future. Thank you. Karen. I'd like to, like to thank Patricia for that last comment. I think it is a very interesting um, comparison. It's hard to see how you resolve any of this. Um, I'm not sure quite what the solution would be, but I certainly think it needs to be sort of discussed more. Maybe it could be part of research in the future in some, re some ways. But, yeah, I think, thank, you, thank you for making that comment, Patricia. Um, I must admit this afternoon I was quite daunted by the prospect of being in a room full of lawyers. So thank you to all the lawyers for putting up with an anthropologist for the afternoon. Um, but um, I think my final thing would be that essentially I think it's issues like this which um, involve our most human and most intimate um, uh, acts that we do as people... Um, that we need to be listening to the people most involved. And the, one, the voices that we don't hear in many of the debates are those of the surrogates, are those of the intending parents, and those of the children involved. And I think uh, that should be our starting point uh, for policies. Thanks. Um, 
what I think is so interesting in so many of these discussions that I, I've had with academics and members of the public and members of the media is that I, I think there is a lot of people are saying in different ways and in different registers and with different words that reproductive self-sufficiency is an appropriate um, goal for Australia, yeah, ethically, um, that that is the right thing to do. And yet I don't see us doing anything to change the Australian landscape to achieve that. And so I, for me, I think the, the call to action for all of us shouldn't be to think about prohibiting particular practices or stigmatising particular populations, but to say, do you know what? If Australian people want to have babies, they should be doing so within Australia, utilising the gametes um, and contributions and, and assistance of other Australians, then we need to think about what to change within Australia to um, promote beneficial practices and allow that to happen.